Oh, man. My name is Bridget, a grateful alcoholic. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Um, you know, I was told by my sponsor, don't ever volunteer, but if you're asked, you better say yes because you don't ever say no on alcoholics anonymous. And uh, I just passed that information on to, to somebody a little bit newer in the program. You know, we don't volunteer, but we definitely do when we're asked. And uh, if you hear like a thud, 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 that's my knees knocking up here. So if anybody's got some dust things to take them together so I don't fall over. <laughs>
and she wouldn't notice. You know, there's my soda, and I'm drinking my soda, but I'm getting a sip of this gin and tonic, and I'm getting a sip of this whatever on the rocks. And I like to say if I can tell you that much, because I was being grown up just like everybody else. And I did the same with my dad. My dad would go to the bar with his buddies, and he'd take me along, and they'd shoot pool. And the guys would put their drinks on the edge of the bar on the pool table, I mean. And I'd go around the pool table, because I could barely see over it, but... I'd go around the pool table and, and, and sit drinks, and I learned to, to shoot pool with the best of them. And you. And that was my life. And I thought everybody grew up that way. I didn't know that that's just not how it was in everybody else's home in middle America. My dad remarried to this wonderful lady, and I thought she was wonderful at the time, and I do today. However, there was a spell in between where she was, I didn't think she was so wonderful. But she was, she just, I tried her patience and she tried mine. Um, and I began a phase close to my teenage years where you don't love me, you ain't my mother, I hate you, you know, the typical teenage rigmarole we all go through. You know, and, and the thing is, we go through that with our own children, let alone stepkids. But it, I think it comes worse than stepkids because they're not. And, you know, today I'm, I gladly call that woman my mother. And I'm grateful that God made her a part of my life. Um, if not for her, I probably would not be here today. And I honestly believe that from the bottom of my heart. Um, I could drink, my, there was always alcohol in our home, um, bottles of wine and cans of beer. There was no heavy liquor or anything like that. Um, and my dad would love me. As long as I asked, I could have a half a beer. I could have a whole beer if I got a little later. And that was okay. And once again, in my mind, in Britt's own reality, she was being a grown-up. I could come to this because I'm grown-up. And it made me feel more normal. Not that I really knew what normal was, but I felt because I hung around adults that was normal. It wasn't normal of the kids I went to school with. I wasn't normal to them. I was a misfit, and it would stay that way. <laughs> and lo and behold, my freshman year in high school, and I'll never forget it. I wanted to fit in so badly. And, you know, the school counselor signing me up for classes and doing all the prim and proper stuff, you know, shorthand and sewing and taking. And I looked at her and I said, I have no use for that. I have, the only thing I have use for is cooking. I said, I want to take out a mechanic. That inherent wanting to please my father deal. I mean, it just stuck. It always seemed to stick. No matter what I did, I wanted to please my daddy, and I was never good enough. In my mind's eye. There's, I have found, in hindsight, there was reality, and then there was what Foot thought was reality. <laughs> and it was the committee in my head telling me all kinds of things. And that committee, at that point in my life, told me I just wasn't good enough. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't smart enough. And all those other things that we tell ourselves that we're not. And it was about at that point where things changed in our household. I now have a little sister, nine years my junior, and my dad's temperament changed due to his own consuming habits, and things got very abusive around our house. And I got invited to my first party the last day of my freshman year of high school. And so without checking with my parents, because I knew what the answer would be, 
Then he invited to go home. We got on the school bus, went to the, went to the kids' house, he was having a party, and we were off to the race. And everybody started showing up, and everybody was having a good time, and I don't remember a whole lot about that night, which, which should have been my first quiz. <laughs> this was going to be a problem for me at some point in my life, if not right then. And it was right then, because there are whole chunks of that night that I don't have any clue what happened. I know I have seen a great deal, and I know that two guys, two of the cutest senior guys at my school, took me home. And everything in between is a blur. I also knew that night would be a night that I would never forget, because when I walked in the house, my dad thought somebody was robbing the house, and he fired an unknown meter shot across my nose. Can't blame him for that, but at the same token, at that point, I sure did, and the fight was on. And it's customary in our house from that point until the day I left, just a couple years later, um, we had a vicious cycle. My dad would say something or my mom would say something and I would smart off as I did in, in true teenage fashion. And probably usually because I've been drinking or was on my way to go drink. And my dad didn't like what I had to say and so he said something and then we went to talks. And somebody would get hurt and then somebody would leave the house, mainly me, and disappear for a few days and scare my parents half to death. And then I'd get purposely found and my dad would apologize and I'd be like, yeah, right. Okay. And he would buy me something really nice. Like the boom box I wanted. Of course, like back in the 80s, they had those big old boom boxes. And I wanted one. And my dad said, no, well, first way to get it is to get drunk, get in a fight, have an argument, leave the house, come back, get what I want. Hard way to go about it, folks. It really was. <laughs> but it worked, and I knew it worked. And the more things escalated in our home, the more I got. And the more I had to be creative, where I started drinking not just what I could get from my friends and not what I could sneak out of the refrigerator, but scopes, cocktails, rubbing alcohol, cookies, or loaf of bread. I don't recommend that. Um, I don't recommend any of it these days, but that was a tough way to go. But whatever I could find that contained alcohol, I would drink it because I could readily replace it, replace it without my parents knowing. And I could get it in huge quantities like scopes, and they would never know. And I would just drink it. And I could hide it in my, school, my locker at school. Because they weren't on the wiser either. You know, they'd do locker checks and they'd be like, I'd have scope in there and cough syrup and they'd be like, no drugs, no alcohol. Check me my locker, put the lock back on it. They only knew. After I had that first drunk and, and couldn't remember a thing, the race was really on for me. I mean, it didn't take long for me to screw everything up. It really did. I screwed up a great deal. I go to class when you pay attention. When you be there half the time. You know, just the normal, typical teenage punk stuff. Except for where my sports was concerned. That was the one thing I knew that I could do that would make my father proud. Was to excel at all my sports. Consisted of quite a bit of avid martial arts artists and skier and gymnast and you know all those things and even though my dad would never come to any meet, which was highly disappointing for me, he was still proud, but didn't quite always show. My parents went home a lot, left me with my baby sister a lot, and. Basically, what happened was my parents had a drunk child raising a child. 
I think she turned out pretty okay today. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't a long time ago, but today I know that, you know, she's pretty, pretty okay today. She's married and has three kids of her own, and uh, she's quite accomplished, and I'm very proud of her. I would have never thought it would have turned out like it has, but about, <clears throat> I was about 16 or so, and we had had another really bad blowout in my house. And this lady, who I loved as a child, had now become my worst enemy. Because she worked, she was a school teacher, and, and so any misfit I had at school, you know, any trouble I got in, she knew automatically a bad thing that happened to you. And I'd get home, and of course, dad would find out, and it was just really ugly. And so she gave my dad an ultimatum, and she said, I can no longer have, handle your daughter's alcoholic weight. I can't handle her mouth, I can't handle her behavior. I can't handle anything. And my dad said, okay, I'll have to make a decision. And she told him it's her or me. And my dad said it would be her and I had to leave. But not with one more blowout. And it was, it was really bad. My mom was pregnant with my baby sister who's 17 years my junior. And, uh, she tried to drown me, and I won't go into the details because we're supposed to keep it general. And uh, I had been drinking, and the backlash was bad. Um, my mom, God love her, she only has one kidney, and I tried to take it out. I tell you that not because I'm proud of it, but I tell you that because that's where my disease took me. I really did not want her to live, and I did not want my sister to live at that point. I mean, that's just how angry and caught up in my business I was. My dad made a choice. It was either my mom, my grandparents, or military school. My biological mom decided she didn't want me. Well, she hadn't wanted me most of my life, so that was okay. I was pretty cool with that idea. I wasn't real hip on the military school idea. I was hip on the military, but not military school. So that left my grandparents, my dad's parents. And God loved them. They thought that's exactly what they could do. They could love me and make everything okay. They just thought I wasn't getting loved enough. If I was loved enough and had a secure home environment with two loving people there all the time, that I would be okay, that I wouldn't be so obnoxious and rambunctious and wild and in trouble and having cops bring me home. Not that I ever got arrested because I didn't, but they sure did bring me home an awful lot for running the streets. And for getting barred from one military installation because I shouldn't have been staying in the men's beds for three weeks, but we won't go into all those details. <laughs> Needless to say, that's, that's, I mean, that's just where I went. And so I go, I live with my grandparents. I get on the plane, I go live with my grandparents for my senior year in high school. And before the, this transpires, I got to back up just a tad, I get pregnant. And due to some circumstances that were out of my control. Imagine anything being out of my control. I couldn't. But this was. I got upset. I was about six months pregnant. And I fell down a flight of stairs. My son Anthony, hence to say, was born three months premature and died three days after he was born. Because of my disease. Why? Because I was pregnant. I was emotional and I couldn't deal with it. And I drank. And I fell down the side of steps because I was emotional and because I was drinking. And he was born. I believe that he died because God took him home because he knew that that child did not need to be in the environment he would have been in. Didn't think that then, but I know that today. And, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and so, instead of grieving, I drank. 
His dad made sure I had plenty of alcohol and hard alcohol at that. Um, my drink was supposed to be tequila or to kill you, and it, it tried at various points. So I had plenty of it, so I didn't have to grieve. I didn't have to feel. I didn't want to feel. I wanted to stuff. And I got really good at that. I got really, really good at stuffing my emotions, no matter what they were, and just being numb. I liked that numb feeling because then I didn't have to think about any responsibility or anything else. Anyway, here's my senior year in high school. Now I'm living with my grandparents and, and God love them. I love my grandparents to pieces, but they didn't know any more what to do with me than what my parents did. My grandmother, she'd fall asleep on the chair in the den and where I'd come creeping in real quietly because I'd been out with my friends. I always made cookies, never screwed up cookies because I didn't want to get grounded. That was like the worst punishment my grandparents could ever give me with grounding because they just didn't know how to deal with anything else. And so I'd tiptoe in and I'd make it all the way past her and through the kitchen and to the staircase. And she'd go, did you have fun? And I'd be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd be like, dog crawling up the steps. She said, well, I'm glad you had a good time. Don't you just got to get up to school tomorrow. And I'm like, just ready to go upstairs and curl. <laughs> I was just like this. I had drank so much and did really stupid things. And it seemed like she was none the wiser. I also figured out my grandparents don't drink, but my granddaddy has his own business, and for Christmas, these other companies would give him crown oil, you know, all the good stuff, the really, really good high dollar stuff. And they kept it in the cabinet over the over the stove. Those bottles are still there today, folks. And I guarantee you my grandparents don't know unless unless they've heard me tell my story that those bottles are mostly water and not alcohol. <laughs> but that's just how little my grandparents drink. <laughs> you know, I mean they just don't. I don't think my grandmother's ever had a problem liquor in her life, and my granddad has the occasional beer maybe twice a year, and not anymore because he's really sick, but, so they didn't have a clue, but I knew those bottles were there, and so every time they were gone, I would take a smidge out of here and fill it up with a little bit of water and a little bit of food coloring, maybe a little bit of Pepsi, just so you get the right mix of color in there that doesn't look odd, and, and I was good. Well... I had this dream that would make my dad very proud, and it was something I wanted to do from whenever I could remember, and I wanted to be one of the first female fighter pilots in the United States Air Force. That didn't happen, but I, 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 I wanted it really bad, and so I got my grandmother at 17 to sign me, sign my list of papers so I could go in the Air Force, and uh, she did. Much to my father's dismay, and I and I went. And what better place to send a budding alcoholic than to the United States military? <laughs> Any branch of service, no matter. <laughs> but it was at this point where I crossed, and I crossed that line that we talked about. Didn't know I had crossed it then. But I know today that that's at the point where I crossed that line. I crossed that line where I no longer imagine my life on a day-to-day basis without alcohol. At some point throughout that day, I had to have alcohol. So I joined the Air Force and married a man that my father absolutely can't stand. I've known him since I was 12 and um, just... My dad just hated him. And so, what do you do when your dad hates somebody? Yeah, ma'am. See that? So, 17, lost baby, got married, joined the Air Force. My life is on track. Nope. I thought it was. I thought I was going to control everything. I had everything already planned out. Me taking control of a life that wasn't mine to take control of. 
I tried to know. And I got pregnant again. The son of my incredibly handsome. And if you don't believe me, see me after the meeting and I'll show you a picture of me, but he's an incredibly handsome 19-year-old child who stands about six foot one today. And uh, he's one of three loves in my life. But uh, I was pregnant with him, and I slowed down my drinking while I was pregnant with him. I didn't stop altogether. My OBGYN doctor told me the best news I could have ever possibly heard. Having a glass of wine every day or every other day is okay. It helps out. Huh. Yeah, all right. We're good. We're good. True alcoholics, when we take that to extremes, and I did. Not too bad, but I did anyway. And he was born, and, and he just turned out to be a good kid. The United States Air Force sent me and my ex-husband, um, my now ex-husband, to Germany. What better place to send a buddy And if I had known then what I know now, I don't think I'd have been as excited about going. But I was, I was excited about going. I have family there. Um, and second cousins and aunts and uncles and so I was pretty excited about going. Going to Germany, this is going to be great. Raise my son just like I was raised, speaking two languages, this is going to be great. So we get there and I'm drinking every day and I'm having the time of my life and I get up with alcohol in my hand and I go to bed with it in my hand every single day. Get me a cup of coffee. It's about maybe half coffee and half whiskey. Half coffee and half Irish honey. I just couldn't seem to function without it. I felt normal with it, without it. For lack of a better way to put it, you know, when you're missing that one something, you feel kind of naked. That's how I felt. I felt naked without having it in my system. I felt incomplete. And I was doing some really wild things. I uh, became a member. I used to ride horses and and ride rodeo, and that didn't change much when I went to Germany. They have a European Rodeo Cowboy Association. And so I became a member, and we're riding rodeo all over Europe, and I'm riding bucking horses. That can change me just wasn't for this girl because it was just too boring. I wanted the excitement. I wanted... The thrill, I like that adrenaline rush. Because it gives me the same high that alcohol gave me. And the two together, holy cow, watch out, you know? I was flying high and feeling good. In that rodeo association, there were three guys who wore these jackets, these jean jackets that had embroidery on the back of the circle and triangle, and said the Wilson guy. Had no clue what it meant. But I did notice that when we were out and about, they didn't drink. They drank Pepsi, Sprite, coffee. Caffeine, caffeine, caffeine. But no alcohol. And I'm like, well, they're fun to be around, but they're kind of a weird sort of boss because they just don't drink. I don't know why they hang around with us because we all drink and we drink a lot. But they were great guys to be around. And March... About March 26th or so, 1989, I would go on what would be my last trip, and it would last until March 31st. And it was fifth of tequila all over the place. I didn't miss a day of work. I did, however, do probably one of the most stupid things I have ever done in my life, and that was get drunk, get in a blackout, and drive with my son in the car. You know, up to this point, I had done a lot of things and driven in a lot of blackouts and come to and got that sick to my stomach. I mean, very, extremely sick in the pit of my gut from coming to and having to go outside and look at the front of my car to make sure I hadn't hit anybody or done anything stupid. Mostly to make sure there wasn't any blood because that was what I was most scared of. 
when I came to was that I had killed somebody. That last few days in March, it just didn't seem to matter anymore. My marriage was falling apart. My husband at the time was doing things that I won't go into, but he was doing things and he liked me wrong. And that was fine with him. The more food that was in my system, the less I was noticing what he was doing, and that was definitely okay by him. As long as I didn't harm our son. But I did drink, I did drink blackout and drive with our son, and I just wasn't a kosher place to go for me. Then March 31st, we were all going to the club, to, uh, to the mission officers club that night to go dancing, and Rodeo the next day, and I got home from work, and I cracked a fifth of tequila, and it was gone before I ever even got in the car. I couldn't tell you how much I drank at the bar, at the club. I do remember going across the street to the bowling alley, and that we all ordered breakfast. And I can tell you it was about 6 o'clock in the morning when I left there. And from that point until the German police pulled me from the car, I can't tell you what happened. What I do know is that I hit a cobblestone wall, and I hit it pretty good. German police pulled me from my car, and they see this medical alert bracelet, because I have asthma, and they figure it was a nose condition that caused me to wrestle. So, they don't take my license, because in Germany, when you get a DUI, they take your license right on the scene, there's no questions asked. You can go take it up in front of the judge, and, and maybe you feel like you might get your license back. <laughs> But God was doing for me what I could not do for myself that day because he let me keep my license. And he let the three guys who I thought were kind of odd show up. <clears throat> they were on their way to the opening meeting of the alcohol, English-speaking Alcoholics Anonymous Convention. They stopped and told the German police, we'll take care of her, we'll get her home, don't worry, she'll be in good hands. They didn't tell them where they were taking me. And if I'd known where they were taking me, I wouldn't have gotten in the car. <laughs> because in my opinion, at 21 years of age, I was three months out of my 22nd birthday. Alcoholics Anonymous, and guys, please forgive me. I'm going to apologize right now. Please forgive me. Alcoholics Anonymous was a bunch of really, really old men who slept in their fridges and just couldn't handle their liquor no more. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> Boy, was I so wrong. I didn't think it was people like me or like you. I didn't think you were young and an alcoholic. I didn't think you lived in a home and were an alcoholic. I just didn't think those things. And that probably was because of the environment I grew up in. That's another story for another time. Um, but that's what I thought. And so they get me in the car and they're like, we're going to get you home. Don't worry, blah, blah, blah. And we pull up in front of this building, and I'm looking around, and it's like, this isn't my house. And they're like, you got to make a stop first. And I'm like, okay, they're like, get out of the car. And I'm like, I realize where I am. And it's like, I'm getting out of the car. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I proceeded to say a whole bunch of things that I know my mom would use several bottles of soap to rough my mouth out with. And hence, it resulted in them picking me up and carrying me in. Literally, one had one leg, one had the other leg, and one had my torso. And I was kicking and screaming and hollering and saying a whole lot of things that I shouldn't have been saying that I was. Because I didn't belong here. I didn't want to be here. I was not a willing participant in my pending sobriety. I really wasn't. I don't want to, you know, it says, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. Well, I didn't have a desire to stop drinking because I didn't want to stop. I wanted to die. I was on a first conscious suicide mission to die. That got all stopped that day. My sobriety date is April Fool's Day, 1989. That lets me know that my God has a sense of humor because the joke was on me. Because that day, y'all told me that I could live a life without another drop of alcohol, and I was like, yeah, right. You got to be kidding me. Well, from that day to day, that was the only way to check out my birthday stuff. They got me inside, and I'm still screaming and carrying on like a two-year-old. And this, this little colored gentleman, his name is Charlie, and I never will forget him. 
stuck his finger in my face, and he said, young lady, shut up. Sit in the chair and listen to what these people got to say. And I did. And he said, I'm bring you a half a cup of coffee. I had to shake so bad, I got ready for the next 30 days, folks. I kid you not, you could set me on a piece of carpet in one spot and I'd wear a hole in it. That's how bad I got ready because of all the alcohol I had dumped into my system. So, I'm sitting there and they're practically sitting on me because they know the first chance I get, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hook you. I am going to run. They think I made my house to get some clothes for me. And I spent the first 72 hours of my sobriety in AA convention surrounded by you folks. That's quite a big thing for somebody who's born in one. That's a big thing for anybody in the age. And I saw y'all laughing and carrying on and I'm like, they're not sober. They're sneaking. I know, you know, they got a little socks or something somewhere. I just knew y'all just could not be sober. But you were. The memory I have of, of that convention and the laughter and the ice cream and the dancing, thing that sticks out the most to me, and it's really silly, was the very first dance I ever danced sober. You know, I go to retreats and everything nowadays, and they play that song, Eric Clapton, You Look Wonderful Tonight, and I, knew, I always dance, and I never forget it. Because it takes me back to that night when my life completely changed forever. Amazing thing, you know, I think about it. If I were to put this all down on paper, you couldn't get from there to here. You couldn't get from where there to where I'm at today. It just doesn't happen except for by the grace of God. The God of my understanding. I didn't have a God of my understanding when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I had God of my parents who was all hellfire brimstone and strike you down dead because you did the wrong thing. And I knew I was going to hell. So it didn't matter. My third meeting in that convention, I finally said I was an alcoholic. And I knew it because of what I was hearing you all saying. I could identify. I didn't want to identify, but I could. You all told me I had to get a sponsor. And you all told me I had to work these steps. And I had no clue what these steps that meant. I did know that my life was not unmanageable. I mean, I looked everybody dead in the eye and said, how can my life be unmanageable? I go to work every day. I have a husband at home. I have a car in the driveway. Well, I had a car in the driveway. You know, I have all these things. How can my life be unmanageable? And I'm like, well, you wake up with, with wanting things like that. Yeah. You want it whenever. Yeah. You get it whenever. Yeah. You like eating still to get it. Yeah. So you like to go manage that. Okay. My life is a manager. <laughs> I'm going to argue because I didn't know how this thing worked and I was along for the ride and I figured I'd learn how to drink and then I wouldn't need to anymore. I can learn how to do it the right way. Well, there ain't no doing it the right way. I learned that. <laughs> there isn't a way to do it correctly. Except for not to drink. To work those steps and to stay sober. You guys, like I said, y'all told me I had to get a sponsor, and so they said, find somebody who has what you want. And I looked at this woman, close to 30 days sober, and I looked at this woman, and I'm like, she drives me nuts. This woman drove me crazy in me. She would calm me down every shot she had, and she drove me nuts, and I hated her. I truly, from the depths of my soul, I hated this woman. But she had what I wanted, so I asked her to be my sponsor. Dad loved her because she put me to the grindstone. I mean, she was all in my face. This is what you're going to do. And I went, oh, no, I ain't. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That was about how it went. I get, well, no, I ain't. <laughs> and after that, I, I knew I better say yes because she was going to lie to me, and she always did. And she did it for my own good. You know? She took me through the steps, you know, told me I had to find a God of my own understanding. And I'm like, how do I do that? You know, this is, this is the God I have. 
how do I find the God of my understanding? She said, look at other people. She said, look at their, what they say about their God. Read your Bible. You'll find the God of your own understanding. The God of my understanding today, thank goodness, is all forgiving and all loving and all compassionate and understanding. And when I screw up, and I do screw up, and I make mistakes and say things and do things that just sometimes are bad judgment calls on my part. Luckily, I have a way to fix them for that. I don't have to stuff it with booze. I have steps that let me get rid of it, that make it where I can write it down, tell another person, give it to the God of my understanding, and make it nice for And that isn't always easy to do. Some of those amends, amends come really, really hard. First off, I did, the first four steps I ever did, I didn't want to do because I was like, y'all had me tearing away about doing this. You know, like, I, you know, there's just some things you're just going to take to the grave. Like, what a, the stuff about my baby sister. Nobody was going to know that except for my parents and me. And I had a few other secrets that I was going to take to the grave with me. And I was told I had to put them on paper. And I made the face, I made this face just to her like, you got to be kidding me. I know it was. I have this way of just torturing my face until I get my point across without not wanting to do something. <laughs> and she said, you're going to do it anyway. And today I'm glad I did. Because if I'd have held on to those things, I most assuredly would have gotten drunk again. My sister, my baby sister, was probably one of the hardest amends I ever had to make. I had to wait 14 years to make that amends. Um, I had to wait till she was old enough to understand what I was talking about by making amends and my part in what I did to her or what I tried to do. And you know what she told me? She said, sis, it's okay. She said, you're not that person anymore. She said, I love you. And it's all right. The God of my understanding sure is merciful. Because I could have lost my sister forever. Because of, of my own, my own resentments and my own hatred that I have when I was drinking. My sobriety has brought a lot of uh, interesting things into my life. I've got to travel a lot of places. Germany was not the only place I've gotten to go. Um, needless to say, um, not due to my drinking, but due to other reasons, I wasn't allowed to stay in the Air Force. Honorably uh, discharged. And life moved on. I got sober. My ex-husband decided he couldn't stand me sober, and I decided I couldn't stand him with me sober. So we went our own way. And... Uh, between the two of us and flying him back and forth constantly, we have this beautiful 19-year-old son. And um, then I hence not to listen to my sponsor and got right into another relationship. Really stupid. And uh, that marriage ended, thank goodness, with no children and was very short-lived. And, but I kept trudging, and about five years later, I got a, I started pulling it back. I wasn't sponsoring as much. I wasn't going to meetings as much. I wasn't calling my sponsor as much. And one day I get this phone call, and she said, So, Britt, uh, tell me, when are you going to go to the liquor store? Do what? When are you going to go to the liquor store? What do you mean? She said, You're not doing the things you know to do. You're getting complacent. Little Miss Know It All, and you're going to get drunk. And she got me scared. Because the last thing I wanted to do was drink. So, from that point to this, um, instead of being on what I call the fringes of Alcoholics Anonymous, I get right in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that means being involved. That means having a sponsor. That means being a sponsor, that means working this step, that means being in my group. And 
being of service. I'll answer it. I may not be coherent, so I get the first cup of coffee down me, but I'll answer it and I'll be there. Because that's what you people did for me. You have been there through the joys of my life, my third marriage, which produced two more sons, um, who are just wonderful, never seen their mom take a drink. My oldest son, he doesn't remember his mom drinking, and I'm grateful for that. But I have that because of you people and the God of my understanding. I wouldn't have it any other way. They wouldn't have their mom. That marriage also ended in divorce, but, you know, it was a little bit different because I was sober going in and coming out. And uh, today, him and I and my first ex-husband and I, we all get along. The three of us actually have open-minded communication between themselves and me and them between each other. And that is truly... By the grace of God. Um, I never thought I'd see that happen. But uh, but we're all peaceful about it. And it's taken some time to get there. But it, it, we've gotten there because I've done not just the, not these 12 steps on the wall, but the 12 steps that are in this book. That's a good start. This is what it is. This is my design for living today. It's not about just not drinking. It's about living my life to the fullest it can be sober. And that's what this book tells me how to do. And I mentioned that it's 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 been an interesting ride and it has uh, a few years ago. I was I call it privileged enough to move to Florida, South Carolina. And we were some good people. And I didn't know then how much of a role you guys were going to be involved in my life. I wasn't here a year, and I had broken my back, and five months later was diagnosed with two types of cancer, for which they put me at stage 3B, which is right at some Today I stand here two years in remission, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> but I couldn't have gotten through it without you people and what this program has taught me. Because not only do these steps and the principles and this book apply to my drinking, but they apply to every aspect of my life. It has to be every single part of my life, my job, my kids. My relationship, everything, and it was no different with that. I took that unmanageability, and I was completely powerless and unmanageable over the cancer and over breaking my back, and God was in control. I was ready to die, and I was okay with it, which sounds really weird to say, but I was. I was okay with it because my flight from April 1st, 1989 until November 9th, 2003, when I got my son diagnosis, was full. I was filled up that big gaping hole I had in my stomach that just wouldn't get filled up when I was drinking. was full, and I was okay. And today, from that, from October, or November the 9th till now, it stays filled up. Because I have so much going on in my life. And it has to do with alcoholics and money. And it has to do with being of service. I'm constantly, on a daily basis, doing something with alcoholics and money. Not just going to meetings, but calling other alcoholics on the phone, talking to them by email or instant message on the computer, um, doing my part because I need y'all to stay sober. I also think y'all need to stay sober. 
I don't know about that, but I know I definitely have to have my own. But going through that cancer deal and everything, I was up in Carolina's hospital, and there were two other women in the fellowship who were up there at the same time. And, you know, the three of us, even as not all together as we were, we were called between floors just to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. Are you staying sober today? People were coming by my house. Knowing I couldn't have company, I couldn't be around people because of the germs and having almost absolutely no immune system. But y'all were coming by my house and talking to me through the screen. How are you doing today? We were thinking about you. We just wanted to stop by and say hi. We love you and we're going to go. That's a far cry from get the heck out of here. We don't ever want you back in our bar again. <laughs> you know? My life completely changed. Completely changed. I am out of time. There's so much more I could share with you. I would love to share with you um, about what my life is like and what it's like now. Um, it's it's been an amazing journey and one that that has truly been trudged. But I wouldn't change one moment of it. I really wouldn't. And in closing, I want to read. What did I do with it? <coughs> one thing to y'all. Um, one of my sponsors gave me this card a long time ago, and it, it, it has really nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. The card doesn't. But in my heart and in my head, it has everything to do with how I feel about this program and these people. To those of you in Alcoholics Anonymous on my journey, who showed me the ways to go and the ways not to go, whose strength and compassion held up a torch of light, and beckoned me to follow. To those of you on my journey who showed me how to live and how not to live, whose great success and gratitude lifted me into a fullness of surrender to God. To those of you on my journey who showed me what I am and what I am not, whose love, encouragement, and confidence held me tenderly and loved me gently. To those of you, I say bless you and thank you from the depth of my heart, for I have been healed and set free through your joy and through your sacrifice. Thank you.